Hello. Hi. <laughs> are we starting? How are you doing? Are you good? Uh, I'm sorry. I turned in this grant proposal last week and wrapped up some things with deadlines, so my brain is, is kind of mush. But I did just celebrate a birthday uh, yesterday, but as of me recording this several days ago, if you listen to this when this comes out, and my big gift to myself, nothing. Like, doing nothing. Kiddo is at daycare. I blocked my calendar for meetings. It was a nice, quiet day. Yes, I did some yard work and worked on this podcast, but those are fun things, right? Because otherwise, I was just sitting around, finally watching Mythic Quest on Apple TV, getting takeout for lunch, ice cream cake in the evening. Listen, I know I'm not winning any awards for the most exciting man in the world, but it was about as perfect as a day gets in my book. Okay, enough about me. This week, I have a very exciting guest. Dan Pink is a New York Times bestselling author whose most recent book, The Power of Regret, has already made it into a ton of best of 2022 lists, even though we're only halfway through the year. His books Drive, When, and To Sell as Human have been enormously popular, bringing social science to the masses. His 2014 TED Talk has been viewed more than 10 million times. He's got a course on Masterclass. He's always popping up on radio and TV. I mean, what else do I need to say <laughs> to convince you that Dan is the real deal? He's also a super cool guy. Uh, I am really grateful to Dan for entertaining my invitation to come on the show and pick his brain on a few other things as well. So I, I want to note that the conversation you're about to hear was previously released on the main podcast, Opinion Science, back in November of last year. I snipped out a bit where we talk more about the persuasion stuff that usually shows up on Opinion Science because I wanted to keep the conversation squarely on science communication for this summer series. But if you already listened to that episode of Opinion Science, there really, I'll just be honest, there's nothing new in this, in what you're listening to right now. But it really is a good conversation and was one of the first ones that I did for this science communication series. So it really set the tone for me in terms of what this podcast series could be. So I encourage you to give it another listen, even if you've already listened to it before. And why is it so good? Well, Dan is one of those people who came straight to mind when I first had the idea to assemble interviews with people about the delicate art of presenting social science to the public. He is not a social scientist himself. But his writing background and curious nature make him very well suited to translating science for popular consumption. I found it really useful to see how a writer by trade approaches my field of research to make it meaningful for a general audience. When I talked to Dan, he had just finished writing his new book, The Power of Regret, and so it was a really great opportunity to walk through his approach to writing a book, from conceiving the idea to polishing the final manuscript, because it was all top of mind, like his files were still <laughs> on his desk. If you've ever considered writing a popular science book yourself, I, I do think you'll be interested to hear his process. All right, how about I wrap up this little monologue and get right to my conversation with Dan Pink. So yeah, so my, my goal is to uh, have this interview do a little bit of double duty, if that's fine, which is that on the one hand, the show is about, like I said, opinion and persuasion. And so you've written and taught and presented on that work. And I want to kind of get your perspective on it. And then also I'm working on sort of a mini side series on social science communication, um, because this is a domain, you know, science communication gets a lot of play, but social science communication 
is its own beast and yep. doesn't really get a lot of attention. So I, I'm really interested in your process and how you got into it for taking insights from social science research and bringing them to a broad audience. Okay. So that's that's kind of my goals here. Um, and to get started, could you maybe just give a little bit of a backstory on how you got into this mess in the first place uh, in terms of writing uh, and in the business sector? So I had no idea that your origins were in law and politics. And then I can't quite trace the moment where it went from that <laughs> to business writer, which is, is sort of how I'm pigeonholing you. W what was that trajectory? Uh, like many trajectories in life, it was uh, unplanned, half-assed, and <laughs> didn't make sense at the time and barely makes sense in retrospect. So the gist of it, uh, as you know, Andy, but as your legions of listeners might not, is that I grew up in Columbus, Ohio, uh, the, the heart of the Midwest, like Muncie, Indiana. Mm -hmm. Muncie, Indiana is arguably even more the heart of the Midwest. Uh, Muncie, I, I know enough, like I've read enough sociology to know about Middletown, for instance, yep. and the Lynns coming to Muncie and, and finding Muncie as the embodiment of, mm -hmm. of middle America. Uh, but, but Columbus, Ohio is kind of like that too. Um, and it's like Muncie without all the excitement. So I grew <laughs> up, I grew up, uh, you know, in a very middle-class middle America childhood. Uh, I think my formative experiences were or institutions at least were public libraries and t team sports uh which which is something that central ohio is very strong it's very strong at both of those kinds of things so anyway i went to college i majored in linguistics which is kind of a weird thing uh but i was really interested in that kind of juncture of what is both social science and mathematical thinking that linguistics has but i didn't go to get a phd instead i went to law school because what the hell I was interested in <laughs> politics and, and, you know, again, I wanted something to fall back on. So I went to, I went to law school. Um, I didn't really like law school that much. I didn't really take to it. I uh, didn't take to being a lawyer, but I was keenly interested in politics. And so I ended up in politics uh, in a half-assed way, started working as a speechwriter. Um, but here's how the story might make a little bit more sense. Throughout the time, from, from the time I was in high school, from the time I was in college to law school, I was always quote unquote writing on the side. Hmm. Uh, and even when I was working in politics, I was, again, writing on the side to the point where in many cases in these political jobs, I was writing articles and op eds and things. And I wasn't getting paid because the ethics rules prevented that. And finally, like in my early 30s, thanks to my wife, in part, it occurred to me that what I was doing on the side was what I should be doing in the center. And so I decided just to leave. I, I knew I didn't want to have a career in politics. It was not for me. And, and I and I think I discovered late in life as, as not even that late in life, but I discovered that, hey, I'm a writer. You know, that, that's who I am. And that wasn't really whoever how I thought of myself, even though it was something I was doing continuously for literally since I was a teenager. And um, and so and then how I got into the business side of it was, is that I really felt like in working in politics, that in many cases, the most impactful organizations and ideas were actually happening in business. Hmm. rather and in technology rather than in politics and government and i had always been kind of acculturated to think oh you really want to make a difference people making a difference da, da, da. and and i found like the really cool interesting innovative things were happening there and i wanted to chronicle that and try to understand that and over time in writing that i i, I started moving more and more toward looking at you know sort of asking the forgive the 50 50 cent word here but asking the epistemological question of okay how do you know this like you're making an argument, you're making a case. For, how do you know? And it's like, well, there's research on some of this stuff. And 
boy, is what I think actually true? Let's go check it out. And, and that led me into the, the social science. I think in some level, Andy, if I were a little bit more open-minded in my youth, I would be doing what you're doing, which is, be, which is being a social scientist and professor. Did you have any sort of, I mean, to jump right into the social science, there's a little bit of a learning curve to get used to it. Was oh, yeah. there any, like, what, what was it like to sort of start digging through the research record to sort of assess the claims? Well, I had I had some experience as a linguistics major, actually. Mm-hmm. And uh, and that was actually really helpful uh, because, um, and, and the one thing about that linguistics as a field has changed considerably since I was there. When I was in when I was studying linguistics, it was sort of on the uh, sort of the beginning stages of what we now think of as cognitive science. And now linguistics is almost entirely comp- not entirely, but heavily, heavily computational. Um, but I was I was actually I actually had the um, the literacy at some level or the basic literacy to read through that kind of stuff and make sense of it. It wasn't totally alien to me. I also had a basic background in statistics. You know, so I, it wouldn't be the kind of thing is like. Standard deviation. Oh my God! What can I, you know? So I, I had some basic stuff there, but I came out, but I came to it slowly. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, I think in my first book I wrote a little bit about it. In my second book I wrote a little bit more about it. In my third book I wrote a lot about more about it. In my fourth book I wrote. In fifth, wait, I don't know. I've lost track. But but, but you get the You've idea. written a lot of books. Yeah. I started. I started devoting. I, I came to it over time mm-hmm. um, and developed some of the some of the literacy. The other way to the other way, uh, honestly, uh, in developing that, I guess you can call it a literacy is um, is is time and effort and actually like just being a grinder, honestly. Um, so I think about So I wrote this book about timing. And in that one, I had some background in social science, but I also, had, but I didn't have that much in biological sciences. And I would read through the papers and I would literally circle the words that I didn't know the meaning of. And I would look them up and then I would read it again. I'm not that quick, but, um, but I'm pretty dogged. And, and I think that doggedness helped me try to figure it out. So I'm, it just sort of naturally leads to something I was maybe going to ask later, but let's just do it now, which yeah. is uh, when you're assembling the science... Right. So once you have the paper in front of you, yeah, that's one challenge. But but getting to a point where you can sort of construct a story out of disparate findings from disparate labs, you know, I have to imagine that is a, a learning curve to begin with. But but now, I mean, clearly you're able to pull it off. So what what do you do? Like as as you know, in your, if you're planning a book project or, yeah. or even an article, how do you approach that integration? Yeah, honestly, I mean, it's like I grind it out. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, but I can, I can tell you more tactically how I do that. So, um, I mean, I know that this is an audio thing, but, but for instance, I, I mean, I'll show you like, for instance, mm-hmm. um, okay, so here we go. So I, um, I like have giant files mm. print and print stuff out. So this is the book that I just finished and it's like, you know, here are, you know, I mean, you can see. Here are paper after paper after paper after paper that I've read. And so what I'll do is, I mean, it's it's not glamorous. Yeah. You know, it's like what, what I'll do is I'll get a sense of like, I'm almost embarrassed to talk about it because it's so not interesting. But so so what I'll do is like there might be an area that I that I that I mean, OK, uh, let's let's take this. So there might be an area like I just wrote a book about regret. And so that mm-hmm. obviously there's a huge amount of research on counterfactual thinking. Mm-hmm. All right. And so, okay. So I say, like, I look around and it's like, okay, what are some of the core papers on counterfactual thinking? 
and I will read those. And then I'll look at the footnotes and say, wow, this paper keeps getting cited. You know, Neil Rose and Amy Somerville are cited in every single paper. Wow, maybe look, let's go to look at their CV and what have they done? And let's actually maybe read those their papers in order. And I will print them out and I will read them and I will underline them and I will put them into a file. And then I'm like, then I will take notes on those and I will put it in, I'm a big, I actually use, um, I have a whiteboard right there, which you mm. can see uh, fairly, I don't know if you can sort of see that, but fairly large whiteboard oh, yeah. there. Yep. Um, and I use, um, I use a program called Scapple, which is a, like a mind mapping program thing. And, and I like just put stuff up there and I put mm -hmm. stuff on the whiteboard and then I sit, I literally, I mean, <laughs> this is the excitement. <laughs> I, I will sit, I'm, I'm not joking around. I'll sit here and I'll just look at it. All right. And then I'll go for a run and I'll think about it some more. And I say, hey, wait a second. That is kind of connected to that, isn't it? And then maybe I'll put them in a file together. And that's why it takes me like a few years to write a book. Um, and then, you know, and then and I've gotten better at realizing, like, what's what's good research and what's not. That's something that I came to later on. It's like, oh, wait a second. You, like you're drawing these giant conclusions and you have, you know, you, you did a survey of 17 undergraduates at Fresno State. Hmm, maybe not. And whereas this one is you know, a giant data set and a, a natural experiment that occurred out there in the world with a giant amount of data, you know, I get better at that and say, okay, this is, this is, this is interesting. And then I've gotten to know some people in the field. And so, you know, I'll say, Hey, I'm trying to figure out, um, action and inaction and regret. Uh, what should I read? Oh, they say, Oh, you need to read Tom Gilovich on such and such. And I'm like, okay, got to read that, you know? And so, and just, so it seems like there's kind of like a, a like a very broad, frantic, <laughs> extended exploration phase. Yeah. Right. Where it's really just like there's no structure. There's like a seed of an idea, and you're tracing lines. There's a um, there's a there's a there's a light not quite close. There's there's often a light structure. Mm. All right. I often will have an inkling of what the structure of things are, and one reason for 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 books is that I always write a pretty substantial book proposal. Hmm. For every book that I do, even though I'm lucky enough that I could probably go in and write like a short proposal and say, hey, I get it, and it's going to, you know, but I don't do that because I need to stress test the idea. Number one. Number two, I need to stress test my own interest in it mm -hmm. uh, because writing a book is a miserable experience. <laughs> and if you if you don't, if you're not really into the idea, it's awful. and It's not going to be a good book. And so so by writing that book proposal, I'll say, OK, here's what I think is like the sort of the the general architecture of it. And then I'll start exploring it and realizing, no, the general architecture of it is this, that, and the other thing. And, I, and I'll move stuff around. And so I will outline and re-outline a book. I mean, it depends on the book, but, but I'm trying to think the last two, if you were to look at the book proposal for the book, When About Timing, mm -hmm. and the structure I said that it would work, and then what came out, there's zero resemblance. Hmm. Um, and then for this latest book about regret, I think that there is some resemblance of like the overall spine, but the contents of it are very, very different mm -hmm. um, because it's like, cause, cause I'm sort of, I'm learning the material in a sense. It's the same with a research project where we're collecting yeah. original data. You go like, yeah. okay, I know what this paper is going to be. And pretty quickly you go, okay, no. <laughs> or like when you uh, submit a grant, you're like, all right, uh, this is the project that we're going to do all these studies. Exactly. And then you get your first study done. And you go, okay, this is going to look real different. <laughs> That's very, I think that the grant 
getting the grant to do a study and then writing a book proposal are similar. But the act of writing the grant forces you to think things through. It forces you to have at the very, I mean, in your in, in your case, and even in, in my case, in a sort of a lesser, smaller way, it forces you to have a hypothesis. And it's and it's and it's hard to begin without a hypothesis, you know, because because a hypothesis at least gives you a frame for thinking it through. But if you really want to think like a scientist, you have to be open to the possibility, the very li- the likelihood, in fact, that your initial hypothesis is wrong. Mm-hmm. I want to, in terms of the uh, collecting up a bunch of studies and and trying to put them into some structure, the the thought that I was having was when it comes time to convey those results, I want to kind of pick your brain about how you do that. Uh, because, so I find sometimes when I'm producing podcasts or I produce this sort of audio series on the science of persuasion for this uh, app uh, about a year ago, and I found that there are some studies that are classics in the field, but that don't make great stories. Yeah. But there are studies that make great stories and and they sort of become more of a vehicle for things. And so I wonder how much you think about that in terms of there are the big ideas that you're conveying, yeah. but you're also communicating sort of the nuts and bolts of how we know those things are true. Yeah. And so how, how do you approach that in terms of a, as a storyteller, as a communicator yeah, that's, that's to translate that? That's interesting. Um, it's a really good way to that, that the way that you're framing it is actually a really helpful way. I hadn't thought about it as explicitly like that, but I, but I, I think that in the back of my head, I was approaching it sort of that way. I just hadn't thought about it as coherently as that. Um, I think that what I, what I want is um, I, I want the biggest ideas. I want the best, sturdiest, biggest ideas. Um, and, um, and I just want to, re- but I recognize the, so, so, so I want to have those and there might be better ways to convey those ideas than in writing about the study itself. And it might be possible to tell a story about something else, something happening in the world that delivers on the punchline there and that you validate with simply the conclusion of that kind of study rather than the study itself. But I want the big ideas. Now, you're totally right that there are sometimes smaller ideas that are super cool in the way that they did it or whatever that have a certain seductive appeal to them. And and I don't want to dismiss it entirely. Because if it has a seductive appeal to me, it might have a seductive appeal to readers as well. It likely will. So what I try to do is not over-index on those, but use some of those really seductive, cool ones to the extent I can connect them and put them in the service of the of the bigger and truer ideas. Yeah, what I, there's there, some studies are a nice happy medium too, where they're yeah. like they they are in and of themselves a compelling story, and you know, like oh, and they were like contributing data to a larger <laughs> data set, right. right? So one of the, the examples that comes to mind is you know there's there's research on trustworthiness in persuasion, and so sure I could randomly assign you to see a trustworthy source or a not trustworthy source and read an article and, and report your opinions. That is like the foundation for a bunch of persuasion science, and it's great. But I came across this study where they were like in a community in Africa and they were needing to combat untrustworthy governments to get people to like uh, engage in some sort of health procedure. And they sort of had to like go into these communities and, and uh, you know, if evoke a sense of trust in, in one way or another. But they were doing it from an empirical perspective, right? So that sort of became this perfect little middle yeah. ground of, oh, it's a story, it's also the data, <laughs> and it sort of does double I think duty. that's great. I think that's great. And, and, and I think that's the way to do it. And the way to find those things is to, is to read a lot. 
So I just wrote this book about regret and I read a lot about counterfactual thinking mm -hmm. and I ended up not writing all that much about counterfactual thinking. Hmm. Okay. I mean, obviously you have to write some of th something about it in order to get into it, but it's not a book about counterfactual thinking. It's a book about regret. But I, I probably spent an entire month reading the, some of the research on essentially the biology and cognitive development of regret. So how do children, there's a lot of research in like developmental psychology about at what age do children begin to experience regret and express regret and all kinds of you know, like the kind of classic studies with children. It's like, here's a puppet. Here's this puppet's mm -hmm. doing this. This puppet's doing that, you know, um, and just piles and piles of research on how children develop the capacity for regret. And then some very, very intriguing research in kind of in neuro, sort of in neuroscience, even in to some extent in neurology about um, how certain uh, brain lesions or neurodegenerative diseases or whatever, imp impair people's ability to understand regret or experience regret or express regret, okay? I probably spent, I think I spent about a month reading through those papers. And the stuff in neuroscience and neurology, which is not my native language, took me a long time to get through, all right? I think I ended up writing maybe three paragraphs, <laughs> which is frustrating, believe me. It's frustrating. Because um, you have to know what to leave out because the contents of those are not that interesting to readers. The punchline is very interesting to readers, but the punchline of all this incredible research is pretty simple, which is that experiencing regret is a certain developmental stage and kids don't reach it till they're maybe seven or eight. And that there are several kinds of neurodegenerative diseases and even brain lesions that uh, have an effect on one part of the brain that impairs the ability to experience regret. Or I just told you what it all said. <laughs> so, so what's frustrating is, but the way you get there is you read through all that crap, not crap, but you read through, <laughs> I mean, you read through, you read through all that stuff and you have to choose your poison. So is the poison, oh my God, I just spent a month reading through this and making sense of it. And I can actually summarize it in two or three paragraphs. Or do you say, because I devoted so much time to this, I'm going to torture my readers, both page after page after page. And to me, it's like, you don't do the second one. And so that's, 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 anyway, that's just a long-winded way of saying like that, that is another way to figure out what works and, and what doesn't. There's certain things where the, the concept is actually relatively easily explained and the way you, they get there is, is not so much. There are other times where how you, you got to it. I mean, like the classic persuasion science study of the hotel towels. All right with Cialdini and Noah Goldstein and the hotel, the hotel towels study, which your listeners probably know about. Okay. The punchline is great. The story is really good too. Mm -hmm. And so you get the best of both. You get the best of both worlds on that one. One of the things that, that the new book and the, uh, to sell as human both do is present new data. At least that's my impression of the regret book, but the, to sell oh, yeah. as human, like you collected new data, yeah. um, which is unusual for, for a writer who is not himself a social scientist, like no way, but you had to like go out and say like, it is worth, it is necessary to tell my story that I collect these kinds of data. So, so maybe could you describe what the data were in to sell as human yeah. and why it seemed like that was a, a worthwhile pursuit? I'm so glad you asked that question because it's something that's actually is important to me as a writer. And I think it represents a change in how the world works. So 
it's so much easier to do that kind of research today than ever before, mm-hmm. right? And, and, and the Regret book is actually a better example of that because it sells human research. I feel like I could have done a much, like many research, I feel like I could have done a much better job of it. I think I was more right than wrong, but I feel like, ugh, you know, I, w- I like to get a second bite at that apple. Um, but what I wanted to do was, 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 again, ask that, forgive me for using this word a second time, but ask that epistemological question, the theory of knowledge question, which is, how do you know? And I, w- I wanted to see if there was a way of knowing that. And one of the amazing things right now, particularly when it comes to things like survey research, is that it's possible to do that uh, for like, 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 I mean, like an order of ma- maybe two orders of magnitude less cost and kind of on your own if you have enough of, say, an email list or anything like that. So um, so so I wanted to know that and I wanted to it was a combination of curiosity meeting feasibility. Uh, and I might have had the curiosity 15 years ago, 20 years ago, but the feasibility wasn't there. But now you had the curiosity meeting the feasibility. I... Hey, everyone. Uh, I'm cutting in here for a second because I think we lost track a little bit of the data that Dan collected for To Sell is Human. And I just wanted to give some quick context in case you were wondering still what we were talking about. So the premise of the book is that people spend more of their time selling than they realize. He gives some anecdotal evidence of this, but also summarizes a survey that he fielded, which asked people about their work and how much of it is spent persuading and influencing people in some way. He found that people say roughly 40% of their work time is spent selling and that this time is crucial to their success. So I I just thought it was interesting for an author to get that kind of quantitative data to at least loosely test the notion at the center of the book's main ideas. So that's why I brought it up. But but he's about to tell us about new data collection that he did for his upcoming book on regret. So back to the interview. I really did a much better job of it in this regret book. And let me tell you about that in two ways. One was I, I did a much, much better survey this time. It's a really, really good survey. But I brought in some professionals to help me do it a little bit better. We, I went out to like, like real panels um, that uh, paid for real panels and oversampled in certain demographic areas so I could be able to put together a stratified sample of what it really, really looked like. And I think that's a really, really good survey. Now, what's interesting about that is that, to your earlier point, is that that's a really solid survey. What we found was interesting. Hmm. Wasn't amazing. Okay. <laughs> you know? So, I mean, so I mean, if you think of it as a two-by-two two matrix with being right on one axis and being interesting on the other axis, okay? Hmm. You can be right and not interesting, and you can be interesting and not right. I don't want to be in this. I want to be right and interesting. And this is right hmm. and like fairly interesting. We got a few uh-huh. really good things there. I also did this thing that proved to be incredibly valuable which was a qualitative research on that one. So we have what I'm calling the American Regret Project, which is is the largest sampling of American attitudes about regret ever conducted, which, again, when Gallup started, and I did the research on this, when Gallup asked the first public opinion question about regret in 1953, Hmm. they didn't even have mainframe computers. (laughs) You know, like like we went back and looked at how they did that, and like it was like hand tabulation in personal interviews. And now I can go and pay for a panel and we can get this, you know, incredible data and I can see it on this, I can see it on this spreadsheet and I can put it into like software that's simple enough for me to use and do like a cross tab and say, oh my God, look at that. Look how different older people are and their regrets about this than younger people are, Um, which again, would have been impossible 20 years ago or 
certainly 50 years ago. Now, one other thing before I go overboard here is that, you know, journalism writing is in some ways qualitative research inherently. But what I found really powerful was the qualitative aspect of this research on regret, where I simply set up a website called the World Regret Survey. It's not random samples. It's not, there are no panels or anything like that. Anybody can participate in it. And we ended up collecting 16,000 regrets from people in 105 countries. And when you do the painstaking, you can do a little bit of like text IQ, text mm-hmm. analysis. It's very blunt, right? at least in my experience, or maybe I don't know how to use it well enough. It's very blunt. It's mm-hmm. like not that subtle. But going back to our theme here, Andy, I'm a grinder. So I read through these 16,000 no. regrets. I did, honestly. No, no, no joke. Wow. I read through. I read Ooh. through them. I know. Um, and had my highlighter. Um, I'm still pretty analog. I work a lot on paper and had my highlighter and started sorting them through and doing that kind of sorting there. And the qualitative regrets, the, 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 the stories that people were offering were extraordinary. And, and they were very, very rich. And I feel uh, like in some ways, that on the quantitative stuff, I think I'm high, very high on right and mm-hmm. somewhat <laughs> high on interesting. On the qualitative, I think that I'm pretty high on right and very high on interesting too. Hmm. Could you so the, regardless of its interestingness, what yeah. what was the quantitative part about? And and still, I, I don't know if I quite caught why it seemed like it was necessary to do that. Oh, why it was necessary <clears throat> to do that? Because because I wanted to make okay. So let me ask that, answer that question. I had a hypothesis about what people really regretted. What like like whether the way that we were analyzing regret was a little bit off. And so I asked some questions to get at that. I was also interested in the ability because I didn't think that the research, the existing research, was robust enough. Because the biggest sample of of opinion in in academia on regret was a was a was a random digit dialing of three hundred twenty seven people about. I think it was like 15 years ago. And, and I'm like, okay, we can do better than this. And, and so I felt like there was open territory and I had open questions. And I was really interested in the ability to do the cross tab so I could see if there, see if there were, because given how much identity is part of the American psyche right now, I wanted to see, are there differences in regret based on demographics, on race, on gender, on age, and so forth. And, I, and that was a way at that in a way that I could make claims about that with some heft in a way that I wouldn't be able to if they said, I interviewed six men and interviewed six women and look how different they are. So that, that, that's what, so, so I, wanted, I, wanted, I wanted heft and I, was, and I was curious about it and this was a way to do it. And, and again, I don't want to discount, it was also feasible. It, it, so it, this is making me think a little bit about a distinction in, in sort of nonfiction journalism where the writer is like an active part of the story versus oh. a sort of the, the teller of the story. Yeah. And I get the impression from your writing that that you are sort of an active participant in the sense that, you know, you describe interactions you had with the people that you're talking to, yeah. um, the reflections you've had on like how much of your own time is spent selling. And in yeah. some ways, this data collection is part of that as well, right? It's like, I wasn't satisfied with just the world that I can see. Like, I want to be part of understand. like, I, there's a question I have <laughs> that's not being addressed. Um, d- does that resonate? How, how much of that? It, I get the impression from your reaction that this is not a conscious <laughs> part of the process, investing yourself in the storytelling? I, I think it's a great analysis. I, I, I think you're giving me too much credit for being thoughtful <laughs> about pursuing that. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll say 
I mean, I could, I mean, you know, if you and I were on the phone, you wouldn't see my facial expression. So, <laughs> you know, so I've already betrayed myself there. But uh, that was not that I never thought about that before. Um, mm-hmm. But I think you might be right. I, it makes sense looking at my own behavior there. Um, I do think that there is a I mean, I'm probably in the middle ground on that in terms of mm-hmm. like writers of nonfiction. Like I don't do a, a full like um, I'm, I'm dating myself. But if you remember the book Paper Lion from George, George, George Plimpton, who's long passed away. He, he There's a famous book of participatory journalism they wrote called Paper Lion where he goes and he plays backup quarterback for the Detroit Lions. And he writes about that. And so people who are like fully immersed in things, almost to the point where it's a memoir more than anything else. You know what I mean? So there's that. And then you have the thing that's that's pure omniscience, where I do not dare to do that. And I'm somewhat in, I, you know, I'm I, specific, like I will use the word I in the text. Mm-hmm. I will break that wall. and, and But I won't, it won't be all I. Most of it won't be. But occasionally I will come in there. And I occasionally I will talk about my own experiences, but I never thought about the research process as part of that. But, hmm. but, but now it is integral to my whole way of thinking <laughs> yeah. about books. Good. I mean, so I, is there a reason why you, why you don't push forward to the participatory part? Like you could have written to sell as human by getting a job at a used car lot and, and just trying to implement these things that you're learning. I thought about that. I, I actually had in a one version of the proposal, that very idea. Um, and great instincts, Andy, and, and the, book had a di- the book had a different name. The book was called, I was calling the book. I think that one of the original incarnations of it was selling myself, mm. um, like sort of, you get the idea, plan words, uh, very clever. And, um, and what I found was that it was a little gimmicky that it could be tedious for readers. Mm. Here we go. Oh, he's selling mattresses now. <laughs> oh, he's selling snow cones, you know? Mm-hmm. And it was just a little gimmicky. And I felt, I, I think it'd be totally fun. I just think the end product would not have been as valuable for readers. So this is a, a reasonable transition point to talk a little more about the persuasion piece of the puzzle, yeah. the, the part that really locks into to this show. Um, and one of the things that strikes me so the masterclass, I will say, I, I don't think I've said this in the recorded interview part, but I told you this before that. Uh, so I watched your masterclass, it was Thank on you. persuasion. I think the. The title originally was Persuasion. I see now it has selling in there. And no, I maybe I just didn't. Orig- I think selling was, was originally. originally yeah, yeah. Maybe it's just the word persuasion is the thing that I locked onto. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. In fact, I think persuasion came later. Hmm. I think it might be the reverse. So I, that's exactly my question, which is as a persuasion researcher, I read this book to sell as human. And there's a lot of use of the word selling and motivating action, I think is the the term that you use. And I go, why can't we just call it persuasion? (laughs) Uh, Was, was there a reason? Uh, Well, I mean, I think I do call persuasion in there, in there Mm -hmm. sometimes, um, in that, in that book, um, what I tried to do was that was one of the few things that is actually, uh, one one aspect of that was was actually conscious and intentional is that I was actually pretty insistent on a, against some of the arguments of other people of putting the word sell in the title mm. and, and talking about selling because there is this visceral like uh, and and I felt like that's what it was and and I was trying to I guess I'm trying to do something similar in that in in regret um, trying to pedal into that headwind. Or that's, maybe that's not the right metaphor. It's almost like, 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 like with regret, what I'm trying to do is, is almost like reclaim it. 
you know, and I think that in, in, um, in, in selling, I was trying, so that's very, that's very explicit. It ended up being harder than I thought. The resistance that people have to selling is more ferocious than I expected. Um, so it was a good, it was a good like exercise to do in, in retrospect, I might have actually gone more in your direction. Hmm. Yeah. So what, so selling also, it, it just makes me think it's, a little narrower, like the things that come to my mind are narrower than persuasion. Was there a, an intention to sort of appeal directly to an audience that would go like, no, selling is what I do, despite the fact that that part of your premise is everyone sells. <laughs> it was more the la- it was more that yeah. it was less about validating the people who were already in sales and more about sort of a wake up call to everybody else saying, hey, you might not like this, but this is what you're doing. And the other thing about it is that I. I, I guess in right, I guess part of it was also I felt like um, selling is in some ways uh, more concrete and more vivid. Uh, and there's a very rich American tradition of it. You know, it's like there's kind of a culture. And so you I think you might have richer um, uh, storytelling and and um, scene making and world building opportunities than you would have for something like like persuasion. So I think that was the underlying it, but, but, but that was actually an explicit effort to, to go against the, the conventional view hmm. for better or worse. Sure. <laughs> uh, in the book, I was a little surprised at first because I, I expected it to be like, like a all social science all the time <laughs> into cell is human. And it really isn't. I mean, it, it, the social science is there to support the claims. And it, as you mentioned before, like sometimes those more anecdotal bits of evidence can yeah. carry the idea. And so I, I'm curious just how you, just to revisit that idea, yeah. how, how you approach the balance of the scientific basis of the claims that you're making and then the anecdotal basis of either other claims or or that, that sort of carry the, the stuff that the science has documented. Yeah, yeah. So, so I'll tell you a way I think about this, Andy, and it, it might not, it, you know, it might be irritating to, a, to a, uh, an academic. I think it is irritating to academics. So here's here's how I think about it. This is one of the few areas where my legal training actually gives me a way to frame uh, a way to think about things. So I think that what I do and what you do are like two different kinds of legal practice. I think that you are a prosecutor. And I think that I am a civil litigator. And in each of those domains, the law says that we have different burdens of proof, right? So in criminal prosecution, the burden of proof is proof beyond a reasonable doubt. That is a worthy standard because in a criminal prosecution, you, are, you, are, you have the potential to take away somebody's liberty. So you want to be pretty damn sure you're right. I think that's what scholars do, that mm-hmm. scholars get to a... Proof beyond a reasonable doubt. That's why we have peer review. That's why we have replication. I think that's what science is. I don't mean only social science. I mean all. Mm-hmm. I, I mean all science. Okay. So um, I think what I do is civil litigation, where is the burden of proof is not proof beyond a reasonable doubt, but preponderance of evidence, and that's that's sort of how I think about it. So I can bring in some of the very best social science, but I can bring in my own observations, uh, stories, and I think together. I feel like the books that I've written as a civil litigator in this 
that I have the preponderance evidence is so strong. It's not proof beyond a reasonable doubt. I don't think you, you should take my books and put someone in the jail forever. All right. But I think that the preponderance evidence is so strong that if this were civil litigation, the other side would be crazy not to settle immediately because you don't want to go to trial with this because I'm going to kick your ass because I have so much evidence. I have to be right here. I have to have the preponderance of evidence. And I go into my civil litigation ready to destroy you with the preponderance of evidence. Um, but it's a preponderance of evidence. It's not proof beyond a reasonable doubt, which is one reason why academic papers, understandably, logically, appropriately, often will make much, 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 much narrower claims because you want to be true beyond, you want to be right beyond a reasonable doubt. I actually really like the analogy and and it sort of has clarified for me what the the goal of popular press writing is, right? Which is not like, this is a textbook of the science and you will learn the truth of the universe in this book. It's, I'm presenting ideas that are very well-founded, but I'm presenting them with the purpose of sort of just sharing this idea and getting you to think about it. What I, I'll see you and raise you. I'm presenting them with the idea of having people think about their, their world and their lives a little bit differently and maybe equip them with one or two things to do differently. Mm-hmm. That's, that's, that, that's what that is. Now, I think it's possible, and, and maybe you will do this at some point later in your career, and many other, especially social psychologists have done this, is like, is litigate both ways. So you have people who, a lot of people, I mean, Dan Gilbert, for instance, at, at Harvard, he's a very, very good writer. Mm-hmm. He is a very, very good writer. He has a natural flair for writing. You see it even in his papers. And his academic research is very, very good. It's, it's really, really interesting. It's really, really good. So when he writes a paper, he's not writing that many papers like these days, but like, well, like some of his earlier papers that really established the foundation of a lot of his ideas, that, 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 that defendant's going to the pokey, man. He's got the, you know, it's truth. But then he can also go and say, okay, I'm going to litigate this civil litigation in a, in, before a different jury in a different set of things and write a book like Stumbling on Happiness, which is actually really, really good too. I mean, there, there are plenty of other people like that. I mean, Katie Milkman is, has a new book out called How to Change. Uh, I, I, think she, I think she's a very, very good researcher, uh, very, very astute, very uh, scrupulous. And her popular book is pretty darn good. Mm-hmm. Angela Duckworth. Um, I mean, some of her, the grit research has come under fire a little bit, but I think that she she's a serious scientist and she was able to write for a popular. So I, so I think that it's possible to operate in both worlds. I actually can operate in the criminal prosecution world. I don't have the credentials to do that. If you have just a, a couple of minutes, I want to follow up on sure. just one of those last things that you yeah. said, which is the, the the part where you said that the goal is to sort of present ideas and also give you maybe a couple of things that you could change about yeah. yourself. Yeah. And you very deliberately present applications of yes. the work, right? So in these books, in the, in the three that I've read, there's a sort of exploration of the idea and then a separate section of like, right. here's what you could do right. in your own life to exercise this, to practice this, to put it into action. The masterclass is very much like, I- I'm sure they also probably pressed <laughs> for that, right? Like you can't just sort of wax philosophical, like people are watching this to actually do something. Um, I find as someone who's embedded in these literatures that it can be tricky to know what that application can look like because I don't work in the world <laughs> where it would be applied. So I'm wondering if you have any sort of thoughts on how to do that translation process of taking the idea and making it into something active. Yeah, I think you do it with a fair degree of humility and you do it as um, suggestions, possibilities rather than edicts. 
Mm -hmm. um, and and so so that 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 you can execute in the writing that you can also execute. You'll notice in the stuff that you just described, it's like I give people a whole like a menu of things to do rather than saying you must do mm -hmm. this one thing. And 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 I think you'll see language in there uh, multiple times and or across multiple books saying, give this a try, see how it works. If it works, keep doing it. If it doesn't work, try something else. So I think you go into it with giving people options. You go into it with a fair amount of humility. Uh, you go into it in a in a suggestive way. Now, so that's 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 how I think I navigate around that. That said, uh, the one thing that I do have a very strong point of view on is that too often, again, in my world, in the world of civil litigation, there is too much of a divorce between the idea and the application. So sometimes you see people who are writing nonfiction books and it's all about the idea and they might be right. They might have the preponderance of evidence, but I find it frustrating at the end because I don't know what to do about it. At the same time, you have people in the more kind of traditional self-helpy realm who are telling you what to do. And you're like, well, how do you know? Mm -hmm. I, I don't even trust you. All right. Mm -hmm. I actually think that there is a power in bringing the two together that I'm not skidded. I want to do I want to bring the two together with some humility, but I'm very strongly committed to bringing the two together. And the reason for that is that it is, first of all, in what I do, I actually want to have an impact on people's lives. I mean, I don't mind getting emails saying, wow, you're such a good writer. You're so brilliant. I don't get very many of those emails. All right. I don't mind getting them. But that, but but honestly, the emails that I want to get are holy. I just did a call earlier today with some teachers and they said we read um, a book. Uh, we read Drive and we changed this thing that we did in our classroom and it worked really well. Hmm. All right. That keeps me in the writing business for another couple of weeks. But more hmm. important, and I think this is actually really important in arguments and ideas and and persuasion too is that I, there i believe there has to be an affinity there is a natural affinity between the idea and the application and more than an affinity there is a there's a synergy between the two because i feel like if if i can convey an idea and it's clear readers might be more likely to take action on that idea mm -hmm. right that the that the that the idea gives the action credibility What's more, I think it runs in the, the error runs in the other direction as well, because I feel like if, if somebody takes action on something, they understand the idea better and that mm -hmm. the two the two mm -hmm. reinforce each other. So I am actually really like that. You know, you, you mentioned mm -hmm. you said, oh, I think you're doing this. I think you're doing that. And I'm like, I am what <laughs> this is one area where I actually am intentionally doing stuff, which, which is that I think that there has to be for the readers out there. The, that the, the idea and the application work together, that they strengthen each other. And so that is, that is very intentional. Even if you approach the suggestions of the applications with a fair amount of humility and never say, this is, you know, it's like, it's like, it's like, it's like quack medicines. Like, oh, if you just take this pill three times a day, you're going to be fine. You know, you're not. Uh, <laughs> but what I want to do is say, is say, hey, based on this set of ideas, here's a set of practices that I think will work. Give them a look. Try them in your own world and retrofit as you see fit. Well, this is this is all <laughs> there's a lot to digest, and I'm super excited to, to have gotten the chance to, to pick your brain on this stuff. And just want to say thanks for taking the time to do it. My pleasure, Andy. I really, I actually, really, I really enjoyed this conversation. You really made me think about things that I hadn't 
that it sort of was blind to. So I, I really appreciate that. Super big thank you to Daniel Pink for taking the time to talk with me about his approach to science writing. Check out the show notes for this episode at opinionsciencepodcast.com, where you'll find links to Dan's website, his books, and other good stuff. This series on science communication is a special presentation of my podcast, Opinion Science, a show about the science of our opinions, where they come from, and how they change. You can subscribe any old place where they have podcasts your Apples, your Googles, your Spotify's, and you can help spread the word about this podcast and this science communication series in particular by sharing it on social media, passing it along to other scientists, science writers, journalists, your parents, and leaving kind reviews of the podcast online. Okie dokie. Thank you so much for listening. We will be back next week with a continuation of today's theme, whereas Dan is a writer who writes books about social science, Plenty of other popular science books out there are written by folks who are themselves full-time scientists. Does this process look any different when you're approaching book writing as a full-time academic? And so I really had to remind myself, especially with popular writing, that you are one perspective amongst many perspectives out there. And I always tell myself that. I'm like, when I'm like, you know what? I don't know. I, I just wrote this very compelling argument, but I have like several counter arguments. I'm like, but this essay is this argument. If you were to take this argument, you know, and make it as strong as possible, this is the argument you would make. Um, and I've had to kind of let go of that, that urge to argue against myself, which I think is really good in academia. You always want to keep challenging your assumptions. Um, and so I, I, in the book too, like when I would be spinning, sometimes being like, I don't, you know, I have 5,000 caveats I want to add. And sometimes I would add some caveats, but like, it was just drowning out the message. I had to tell myself like, there are other books that are going to argue different things, but your book is arguing this and you are making this as strong as possible. And it's one perspective and you don't have the responsibility to like tell every single perspective. I'm Vanessa Bonds from Cornell University. 